Let's just uh, bow our hearts and pray before we uh, study this word together. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this precious book that we call the Bible. Father, we thank you for the lessons that are contained herein for us. Lord, that we would learn to surrender our own lives to you, to allow you to be in complete control. Jesus, we want you to be our first love. And Father, as we study this incredible book this morning, we'll begin this journey through this book. Father, just help us to have ears that are not blocked with our own preconceived ideas or thoughts or ideas of man. Lord, help us to have hearts that are not hardened. And Lord, teach us through your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, two sessions left and we finished the whole of the Bible this year. It's been quite a a journey and so many, uh, for me, personal highlights, so many things that I look back now and um, just things that God has shown us as we've looked. It's kind of helicopter view, as I've called it a number of times. Um, things that you don't necessarily see when you're going through looking at the details. Uh, when you look from uh, that kind of aerial perspective, uh, you see things in a different way. Uh, and God's word is truly amazing. Well, the book of Revelation, um, itself an incredible book. Um, we're going to see the introduction to this book, uh, John's vision of Jesus. And really it's quite incredible because what we've got here is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I should ask you, just hands up, who do you know who, who's the author of the book of Revelation? Anybody? Uh, I see some of you there. Some say John. See, what we do is we ask who's the author. And some people say John and say, no, it's not. It was God. And okay, who did God give it to? And then people say, John, no, because God gave it to Jesus. And okay, who did Jesus give it to? People say, John, no, because then it was given to an angel. Who did the angel give it to? And everybody can then say, John. Okay. But that's what we're told in the opening uh, verse of the book that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And it's really interesting because without this book, the Bible wouldn't be complete for a start, but our understanding of Jesus wouldn't be complete. There's so much that this book tells us about Jesus that we wouldn't know anywhere else in Scripture. So we need to understand first and foremost that that's what this book is. It's an unveiling, a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Who he is in all his majesty and glory. Now, of course, Genesis we know is the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book of endings. Uh, This book foretells the the end of this order of things, the current situation, the current political climate and so on and everything else. It also foretells the end of Satan and his rule on planet Earth. It tells the end of all the false religious systems and the end of all the political systems. And it ties together everything that we have in the Bible. It ultimately leads into an eternity with Jesus enthroned as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, of course, there are two books in the Bible that seem to get so much uh, attention from the critics and so many people try and uh, uh, attack them in various ways. Genesis is one of them because it deals with the beginning of everything, the origins, and then Revelation because it deals with the conclusion of everything. And obviously it announces Satan's ultimate defeat. Now, (coughs) we'll see a lot of things as we go through here. One of the things that people often say about the book of Revelation is that it's hard to understand. 
That's not true. We'll look at that in a moment. We're actually given this book so that we would understand. And this whole mythology that's crept up, that revelation is shrouded in mystery. No, that's not true at all. We'll look in a moment as we look into the first chapter exactly what Jesus said of the reason this book is given in the first place. Now, just to give you a couple of kind of miscellaneous facts about the book, uh, there's more names and titles given to Jesus in this book than in the whole of the New Testament. Now, the book was written somewhere around about 96 AD after John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. There's 404 verses and there's 22 chapters. But in those 404 verses, Chuck Misler in his book Cosmic Codes lists 800 allusions to the Old Testament. That's more than two of it. It's about two a verse. That's incredible. This book is drawn from the Old Testament. Now, one of the problems people have in understanding the book of Revelation is they don't understand the Old Testament. Um, You'll find some churches today will proudly say that they are New Testament Christians. Really? What was it the, the apostles taught from? What was the early church's scripture? It was the Old Testament. You know, we're Old Testament Christians. You know, the New Testament is really just the the expression and the playing out of what God was already doing through those people that had come to know him and been um, made aware of his glory, his majesty, his plan from that which is recorded in the Old Testament. So we'll see that a lot of the things that were concealed in the Old Testament are really wrapped up and made very clear uh, in the book of Revelation. But again, 800 allusions from the Old Testament in those 404 verses. We get 17 scene changes from heaven to earth and back again. So sometimes we're looking at events in heaven, sometimes we're looking at events on the earth. There's 44 separate visions um, that John records for us. We find that the word like appears 22 times. Now, don't tell me the Bible's not current. Because young people today, if you've noticed, in their sentences, all they say is the word like. Well, like, it was kind of like, like, you know, and that's all they say. You know, they just love similes, don't they? What, you know. But like appears 22 times. So we'll find that Jesus' hair is like wool. It's not saying it is wool, it was like wool. It resembled. And that's how God has given this to us, to help us understand. And again, just to make the point, God wants us to understand. So he's given us things that we do know as this kind of comparison model. We find the word as appears 65 times. So, some occasions we'll hear that John appeared as dead, or seemed as dead. He wasn't dead, but he seemed as dead. It's like, it's again, a comparison for us, so we can understand. And John will say um, 35 times, I saw. So it's going to be expression of the things that he was seeing, observing. And so we're going to see lots of imagery and so on as well. The word behold is found 26 times in these 22 chapters. So really that's kind of an important, let's listen, look, pay attention. The word great appears 72 times to deal with obviously the magnitude and this kind of overwhelming experience that John was trying to record for us in the best way that he was able to. But of course, significantly, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that specifically promises a blessing for reading it. Now that on its own makes it a very, very special book. So let's have a look. This is just kind of the breakdown of the chapters as we have them. So again, the first chapter, this introduction and the vision of Jesus. Then we have seven letters to seven churches. Now these are letters written by Jesus himself. Now people, when they look at the New Testament, sometimes neglect the fact that Jesus writes seven letters and they're recorded for us here. Then we get to chapter four and five and our, our kind of scene shifts to the throne room of heaven. And we see what seems to be the title deed for the earth. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then we get into our first kind of real division, the beginning of sorrows, or the first three and a half years 
of a seven-year period that is spoken of throughout Scripture, and we'll see that amplified in this book. Now, as that beginning of sorrows, and that's a title that Jesus himself uses in Matthew 24, but when this period begins, the first thing we find is that seven seals are opened. That's, you know, seals as in sealing a document type of seal, not, a, not those kind of seals. See. All right, so these seals are, are kind of peeled back, revealing something, and we'll see as, as they unfold in a moment. And then 144,000 of the Jews, we find, are also sealed in chapter 7. They're protected, supernaturally protected. We also read of a great multitude that are brought out of this time of tribulation. And then in chapter 8 and 9, we have seven trumpets that are blowing. So seven seals are the first thing, then we have seven trumpets that follow them. And then chapter 10, time is up. It's kind of like... Right, that's it. You know, you know. sometimes you, you give your children uh, an account to three. One, two, three. Right, time's up. That's what we get to when we get to chapter 10. We'll explore it in a moment. And then chapter 11, which is as far as we're going to go this morning, uh, we get to these two witnesses, these two individuals uh, that the Lord sets up and establishes to proclaim the gospel, to preach for three and a half years in Jerusalem. And we'll look at that uh, to conclude in a little while. What will then go on, and next week we're going to carry on, we get to the middle of the week. So this three and a half year point, and then chapter 12 starts with this um, symbolism of a woman representing this uh, mystical seed that's come all the way down from Eve. And we'll find that this, this seed was clothed with the nation of Israel to protect. So we have this woman, and we have the dragon who we're told is Satan, and this battle that's ensuing. It's very apt in the days we live in. We see so much of it. We'll talk next week. Chapter 13, we're introduced to the beast uh, and the false prophet. The beast being Antichrist, a name that's so familiar the world has uh, known these, these phrases and terms for so long, but they don't really understand what they're about. Uh, but we'll find that there's a satanic trinity. We have Satan. We have, in a sense, modelling God the Father. We have Antichrist in the place of Christ. And then we have a false prophet setting himself up in place of the Holy Spirit. It's a satanic trinity that will be operating uh, during this period of time. We then find in chapter uh, 14 that the 144,000 Jews that have been supernaturally protected are then caught up to God and his throne. And then we get to the last three and a half years. Now, this is a period of time that Jesus himself referred to as the Great Tribulation. Now, this is when it really does get kind of bumpy, as it were, on planet Earth. We've got the seven uh, vile or bowl judgments um, that then uh, uh, poured out on the Earth. And then we kind of have a, a break as we get to the marriage of the Lamb and the second coming. Uh, that's in chapter 19. Now, we then got some uh, portions in between that because you notice I've missed out chapter 17 and 18 there. 17 and 18 are uh, a kind of parenthesis in a sense that's inserted because a lot of revelation is indeed chronological. It follows on in sequence. But chapter 17 and 18 we find actually also span much of this time and we'll, we'll cover that next week and explain how it all fits together. But then to conclude the book we have the millennium. This period of Christ's reign on earth. One of the most written about topics in all of scripture and yet denied by so many even in the church and that will conclude in chapter 20 with the great white throne judgment as god himself uh, sat on his throne and then everybody you know people talk about judgment day well that really is the judgment day in a sense and then finally we get to the last two chapters which will explain for us what is yet to come it'll speak of a new heaven and a new earth and that will conclude the book for us so that's kind of a hopefully helpful little breakdown for you now Chapter 1, then, John's vision of Jesus. 
So again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And that's what we said earlier. Now, again, the first thing, the title is not Revelations. Some people say that it's not. It's Revelation. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's really what it is. And, you know, ask yourself the question, what would your impression of Jesus be without this revelation? You know, so much of what you know of Jesus and his majesty only come really from this book. We know lots of Jesus in terms of the time that he walked the shores of Galilee, climbed the mountains of Judea. But in terms of the God element of Jesus, you know, because obviously we have uh, Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And sometimes we focus on the flesh part and we think of Jesus as a man. And of course he is a man, that's true. That's what God did, this incredible gift, in a sense that God allowed his son, that Jesus willingly took on the form of a human. But at the same time, he's still God. And what Revelation explains to us, this Revelation is the unveiling of just who Jesus is. Well then... We see which God gave. This is God that is giving this. And this is a kind of revelation um, to show unto his servants. Now, I think, again, just to mention, this is so that we do know. This isn't something that we should put to one side and think, oh, it's very confusing, it's all picture language, it's allegorical, or whatever so many people will say. This is something we're meant to understand, and God wants us to know. And then finally, we find that uh, this book is sent and signified. Okay, so it's rendered into signs. Now, we're used to signs, aren't we? Now, so many people will talk about the, the way Revelation, as I mentioned a moment ago, uses picture language or allegory. So they'll suggest it's trying to imply something else. But think of a sign. You know, a sign that's on the side of a road points to something that's literal. It can't point to something that's figurative. That doesn't make a sense. It doesn't make sense of what a sign is. A sign is always pointing to something of substance, something that's actually real. And that's what these signs do. And so we'll find that we have these uh, signs that the, the book is rendered into to help us to understand. And again, it's his angel that then delivers this uh, to John on the Isle of Patmos. <clears throat> so as we carry on, just that first chapter, we're told... Blessed is he that reads. So this is the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing for simply reading it. Now that's incredible. Again, it puts it in a unique category. And they that hear, we're told. Now, this isn't just hearing. You know, ladies, you'll know very well that you can speak to your husband sometimes. And he hears, but he's not listening. You know, and sometimes we do that with God, don't we? That actually we kind of hear something, but we weren't really listening. We weren't really paying attention. And this impl- the implication here is not just that we audibly hear something or, or we kind of read it and understand the, the words, but that actually this kind of penetrates our, our thinking. So we're not just to um, uh, just give some sort of uh, passing uh, observance to this, but actually this is really to, to affect our thinking. So blessed is he that reads and that understands, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Now notice also that it's the words of this prophecy. That's a really important point to mention because the book of Revelation is for us a book of prophecy. Now that's important that we keep that in mind, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And again, just to mention, it's not a book of predictions, the world has kind of predictions. We've got people like Nostradamus and so on and others that predicted things. The Bible does not deal with predictions. The Bible deals with prophecy, and it's very, very different. Prophecy is the future recorded in advance. 
Now, only God can do that. And God actually says in Isaiah 46 that that's one of his unique attributes, that he can record the future before it happens. And he sets it up as a test. Try me in this. And we can indeed test and see that God has shown the future in advance. And that's what this book is. So this is like tomorrow's newspaper headlines before we've got there. And again, this uh, third verse concludes and says, For the time is at hand. And what it means simply is that this is a book for now. You remember Daniel, in the book of Daniel, at the end of the book, he's told to seal up the words. Because it wasn't for that time, it was for a time yet future. But John is not given any such command. John is told, the time is at hand. So we need to understand that this book is very, very relevant for us. Well, jumping to verse 6, we're told that he's made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now, just a couple of things to mention here. Just firstly, the, the fact that he's made us kings and priests. We who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, have been given this incredible privilege. Notice also what we're told here. Because we've got these two groups. The kings and priests, those who were part of the church that have been brought in. And then they also which pierced him. Who's that a reference to? The Jews. This is really interesting because just this verse on alone, uh, it just gives us this understanding that God's plan involves Israel. Israel are going to see him. They will realise. And this really is an allusion to that which we read in Zechariah chapter 12. That they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. And finally, Israel will come to the knowledge that Jesus is their Messiah. One other thing, just to mention here, because there are a number of people that will try to interpret um, the book of Revelation in different ways. You've got the preterist view. Um, and this is a view that all of these things were fulfilled by the time we get to about AD 70 or so on. Well, for a start, the book wasn't written till after that, which makes it a bit tricky. Um, and secondly, we know that these things haven't been fulfilled because Jesus hasn't yet come back. Not, every eye has not yet seen him. So it's very simple from the scripture alone just to dismiss that particular position. The historical view, which is the view generally adopted by the majority of the church, which suggests that the things that we read in this book have been taking place throughout time. Now, let me just give you a little bit of the historical background here, because we've got the first 300 years of the church, and the church was being persecuted. Now, that led many in the church to start to think, after they started to look at books like Revelation and so on, that we were in the tribulation. We then come to the time of Constantine, and Constantine legalizes Christianity. He allows Christianity to uh, start to move into the, the, the pagan temples, Yesterday I went to Salisbury, Joy and I and the children, and we went to see some friends, and we were looking around Salisbury Cathedral, a beautiful place. But I just, we were just chatting, I said, isn't it incredible that we went from meeting in homes to suddenly these ornate, lavish buildings? How did that happen? Well, it happened because the church started to use the pagan buildings, and the pagans were kind of forced out. And suddenly we end up with the, the clergy and the laity, we have altars and so on, that are, are very different from that which the early church would have known. And suddenly... People in the church, sincere people in the church, started saying, well, this must be the millennium. This must be that time that we were promised, that time of freedom, of blessing. And so they had to look at the scriptures and think, well, if this is the millennium, maybe it's not talking about a literal return of Jesus. Maybe just Christ dwelling in us is what it means. And so they tried to reinterpret scripture based upon their understanding. It's always a very dangerous thing to do, by the way. 
but not to question their sincerity because I believe that many of these people were sincere. Now that became the view that was adopted primarily by the Catholic Church as things progressed. It then got adopted by the Anglican Church and most of the other denominations that have come out from those groups. So we end up with a, a view today, the prevalent view is one called a millennialism. Okay, that there won't be a millennium, not a literal period of a thousand years. But that's where it started from. But again, that's just one of the views. That's a historical view. And again, that can be very clearly shown to be incorrect from Scripture itself if we allow Scripture to be our basis. So many people try and interpret Scripture based upon the times they live in or the current culture. That's not the way we should do it. There's another view that suggests that everything we read in Revelation is just spiritual. And it's just pointing to kind of this struggle between good and evil, between God and the devil. Well, that's nonsense because there's no struggle between God and the devil. Think about it. The devil is just a created being. God is the creator, the sustainer of all things. You know, God has allowed Satan to do what he's doing because it will fulfill God's purposes. And there will come a day that Satan will be judged accordingly. There's no battle between God and Satan. It's not as if you've got Jesus in one corner and Satan in another corner and they're just going to go at it. The devil has been defeated by Jesus on the cross already. You know, and there's not this kind of cosmic battle that so many people would assume. People think that God rules in heaven and Satan rules in hell. Satan doesn't rule in hell. Satan doesn't want to go to hell. It's the hell we're told by, uh, in John's Gospel. The hell was made for the devil and his angels. Satan will end up being cast into the lake of fire. Satan does not sit there with a kind of pitchfork and pointy ears ruling in hell. Satan, we're told, is the god of this world. That's what he always wanted, by the way, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So, the final view is what's sometimes referred to as the futurist view, which is the idea that the majority of these things are yet future, uh, and uh, to be unfolded in God's timing. <clears throat> and notice again that the kindreds of the earth will wail. And that's talking about all the people of the earth, all the families of the earth. So why are they going to wail? Well, we'll see very clearly as we start to move forward. <clears throat> now, we begin in, uh, just to pick up verse 11, it just is saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in the book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, unto Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these seven churches, we'll look at a map in a moment, are the ones that this is written to. But notice we have that reference there to the Alpha and Omega. That's drawing from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 41, verse 4, 44, verse 6, 48, verse 12, where God himself makes the bold statement that he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And yet here, Jesus is the one that's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, by the way, if you have a modern version of the Bible, that's omitted. If you've got one, look at it now. You won't see, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and last. It's not there. And I also will tell you this, it's not in the Jehovah's Witnesses version either which can make a very interesting conversation with them. Because here Jesus is declaring that he is the Alpha and Omega. And that is in the original manuscripts, it's in the original text. <clears throat> okay. So looking at a map, geographically, this is the area. So Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus and Smyrna. That's obviously not in the right order, but that's where those churches are. In what we would today refer to as Turkey, uh, on the uh, west coast of Turkey uh, toward Greece, on the side of the Aegean Sea is where most of these uh, are located in that region. 
Now, we're given a really clear breakdown uh, in the text itself. You know, what we've tried to do as we've gone through the Bible this year is summarize things and break it down to try and give you kind of bullet points as to what the the book is divided into. Well, we have a divine version of that in the book of Revelation. Because we're told, John is told, write the things which thou hast seen. Now, that's referring to chapter 1, the vision and so on that John sees. And then the things which are. Now that would refer to the churches which existed at that time. The letters to the churches. And the things which shall be hereafter. And from chapter 4 through to the end of the book are the things that are yet to come. And this gives us a great outline to help us to understand how the book is put together. So into chapter 2 and 3 and we get these letters to the churches. Now there's four levels of meaning. And it's very clear from the context that this is intended Firstly, there's a local application. Okay, they were real churches at that time. We're told, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. These were seven real churches that existed. They had real pastors, real congregations, and they had a whole array of different issues and problems. And as Jesus writes to them, he addresses a number of those things, which were genuine issues and problems at the time. And it's very interesting to do a bit of a historical study. We haven't got time for that this morning. And look at the, some of the things that come out of the letters And look at what was going on there at the time. And it's incredible to start to join those dots together. But the second is a personal application. Because we're told, he that has an ear. Now as I look around this morning, I see that you have ears. That means this applies to you also. So this is for anybody that has an ear. Anybody that's prepared to read and look and listen at these things. Thirdly, it's a message to all churches. Because we're told in the text, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And each letter will have that in there. So each one of these letters is applicable to all churches. And then finally, there is the prophetic um, level of meaning in this, um, which we will see that these seven churches, in the order that they are in, depict seven distinct church ages through history. Now, there's a number of proofs for that that we can give you. But as we go through in a moment, you'll see. But the most significant thing is that actually, if you find a kind of key on the ground and there's a door, how do you know if the key fits? Try it. Oh, it's exactly the same here. Because as we look at the prophetic outline that's given here, and then we look at history, we see we've got an exact fit. Now, we also see the same thing paralleled in the parables in Matthew chapter 13. But we also see the same thing paralleled in the history of Israel. And it's an incredible model that God has laid down here. And maybe some other time we'll have more time to dig into these things and go through them in depth. Um, But remember what we're told in chapter 1 verse 3, the words of this prophecy. This book is a book of prophecy, so it should come as no surprise that even the letters to the churches have a prophetic content to them. Now, because it's so important, I want to just have a look at the prophetic element, just to just give a quick overview of these things. So, the first church that we find addressed is the church of Ephesus. The name just means love of espousal. And it's very significant, I would love to go off on tangents here, but we just have to try and keep on track. Because it could just, again, talk about how this maps the history of the nation of Israel. The second church, Smyrna, which means suffering. The third church, Pergamos, and the name means mixed marriage. Um, so that we have gamos, the same polygamy, monogamy, that idea of marriage, uh, and so on. And per, the same root that we get perversion or so on from. Um, so it's a perverted marriage, a mixed marriage is what the implication is here. Thyatira, name actually means continual sacrifice, very applicable as we'll look at it in a moment. Sardis, the name means remnant. 
And we'll explore why these have this prophetic implication. Um, Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. And then finally, Laodicea, which is the rule of the people. So we'll look at all of those just very briefly, uh, and then we'll go through from there. So the prophetic history of the church. Now, again, Ephesus representing the first church age, the early church, from 32 AD, from the time of the resurrection, from the time of the book of Acts onwards, up to around about the end of the first century. Now, this parallels the parable in Matthew 13 of the seed and the sower. The, the seed was going out and being sowed, and some again just fell by the wayside, and some were hardened soil. But some of that seed brought forth a hundred times, thirtyfold, and, and so on. <clears throat> in Revelation 2 verse 5, we read, Remember therefore where thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. The reason I'm highlighting that scripture is because there's a warning here of finality. Okay, There's no promise to endure to the end here for this church. And you'll see why I'm making that point in a moment. The second church age is the church represented by Smyrna. Now Smyrna, again, the name means suffering. This represents that time from about 100 AD to 313 when the church was going through terrible persecutions. It's when the lions and the Christians were both on the same bill at the Colosseum. And it was a very, very turbulent time for the church. The church typically was meeting in the tombs, the catacombs. Uh, they were meeting in houses, but trying to keep out of the way of the authorities for fear of being arrested and put to death and so on. And again, during this time, we find paralleled in Matthew 13, the parables there, the tares were being sown among the wheat. Now history attests to this fact. We have so much false doctrine starting to creep into the church during this time. Jude, in his letter, we talked about this last week, writes about that. Paul warned that those things were coming, and we start to see it during this period of time historically. And there's lots of um, heresies that were being addressed. So much so that you get to 325 AD, and you get to something that you may have heard of, the Council of Nicaea. It's when all the leaders of the churches got together to kind of put a statement of faith together. What is it we actually believe? And really, it was designed to combat all the heresy that was starting to creep into the church. The reference here to uh, Revelation 2 verse 10 is to be faithful unto death. Again, no promise to survive, to endure to the end, but a finality. <clears throat> the third church age, represented by the, church, uh, the letter to the church at Pergamos. This really is the church from 313 up to about 590 AD. This is the, the Constantine church, if you like, when Constantine, who was the Roman emperor, also became the first head of the church in that sense. Um, joining the, 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 the political and the religious together. And uh, in some senses, um, he really laid and paved the way for the papacy which followed on after this. <clears throat> but you see, as I mentioned a moment ago, what happened is suddenly all the persecution stops. And the church, and this is paralleled by the mustard seed parable in Matthew 13, suddenly became something it was never intended to be. Jesus never intended the church to have a political side. We weren't ever to rule the world politically. Jesus will come and do that at the second coming. But that's not for the church to do. And the mustard seed, which so many people look at it as a lovely parable of the church growing and flourishing. No, what happens there in Matthew 13 is that this little seed that should grow into a bush just a few feet high becomes a tree, something it should never have been, and the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches. Well, if you read in Matthew 13, you'll see a code is given in the opening few verses there. The birds of the air, in the context that it's given, are the emissaries of Satan, the ambassadors of the devil. Lodging in the branches of the church. 
And so the church grows and becomes something it should never have been. The name so applicable, Pergamos, a mixed marriage. Exactly what happened. And again, a warning. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, uh, this kind of idea of uh, finality for this church. Then we move on, and there's a shift even in the construction of the way these letters are written at this point, to the church of Thyatira, representing the fourth church age. And the name means continual sacrifice. How interesting, because this is the point that the Roman Catholic Church really comes uh, into being and starts to become the dominant force that it became through the whole of the Middle Ages and so on. And really, this church will span that period of time from around about 590 AD up to the tribulation. Now, this is paralleled by the parable in Matthew 13 of the woman and the leaven. And a very interesting study you can do there, again, of this, uh, this leaven, uh, which again speaks of pride of sin, of being puffed up and corrupted, uh, and so on. Uh, the verse we have, though, from chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now that's interesting, because it's not promising a, um, a finite, definitive moment where they'll be done and dusted, but this is implying that this church age will continue up until the time of the tribulation. And you'll see how this again plays out in just a moment. Well, following the church age, we ca- sorry, following the, this, that church age, we get to the church at Sardis. So after the Roman Catholic Church had been this kind of powerhouse through the Middle Ages, we get to the time of the Reformation. And the church of Sardis really is representative of that church. The name means remnant. But whereas it's very easy to be critical of the Catholic Church, just as actually you people were critical of the nation of, or the northern kingdom of Israel for their idolatry and so on, it's interesting, there is nothing good said about the church at Sardis. And if you look at the Reformation church, a lot of people look at it as a, a real wonderful moment for the church. Now, of course, you can argue that we rediscovered the whole doctrine of salvation by grace. And, of course, Martin Luther, a very key uh, individual in that. But so much was left unclaimed. The, the whole issue of Israel and Israel's place really was left unaddressed by the Reformation. The whole idea of eschatology, the end times, was left unaddressed by the Reformation. And so many other areas of scripture and so many additional errors also introduced at this time. So in one sense it was very positive, but also there are some real problems as a result of this. Um, Again, we're familiar with that period of history, of course, King Henry VIII and others at that time. Now again, some good things happened. We have the Bible finally being put into print, the first book that ever was properly printed, and so on. And uh, lots of other positives going on, but that church age. Interesting though, Matthew 13 is uh, the parable that will parallel this. Speaking of the hidden treasure, now some would argue and see this as being the, the recovery of that doctrine alone, of just grace being all that we need, just God's goodness for salvation, not our works, not anything else, just simply understanding this. Now, of course, the parable itself has no question. Uh, it's speaking of Jesus giving up all that he had to purchase the field that he may obtain uh, a treasure and so on. But there's definitely a, a parallel there as well. We're told that also, if therefore thou shalt not watch. Well, let me just highlight that. How interesting, because if you look at the traditional churches, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, most of the denominational churches, one of their characteristics is they do not care for prophecy. 
They're not interested. In fact, the, the Catholic's Bible doesn't even have the book of Revelation in it. If you will therefore not watch, how applicable. I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I shall come upon thee. Uh, again, we have warnings in Thessalonians about those who are not watching, not waiting. Um, Jesus makes it very clear that we should be watching, we should be waiting. But then we move on to the Church of Philadelphia. Again, the name meaning brotherly love. Now this represents the church age that really went from about 1750 and will endure up until the time of the rapture. Now this is such an interesting period of history because we have so many great men of God. People like Spurgeon and Moody and so many others, Oswald Chambers. Even people like Chuck Smith who just you know, a year and a bit ago now went to be back home with the Lord. And so many other great men of God through this period of time that God has used. Again, to get back to the truth of his word. And interestingly, we have the parallel in the parables of the pearl of great price. Matthew thirteen forty-five to 46. Now, interestingly, the pearl is a non-kosher item. Why, why do we even have that in a Jewish book, as it were, in a parable about you know, something you think is Jewish? Well, because it's speaking of the church. Because, interestingly, a pearl is grown under... Um, irritation under is a secretion that effectively causes the um, the pearl to grow. And so it's kind of this irritation that causes that growth. Well, how interesting with the church, but that pearl is then taken from its place, and it becomes an item of adornment. But it's very gentile, and well, the church again has grown through periods of tr- uh, tr- uh, troubles and tribulations and trials and so on. But we will be taken from our place and will become an item of adornment for Christ. What an incredible um, uh, simile we have with these things. <clears throat> and we're told also, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. And then finally, the last church age, the, the rule of the people, Laodicea is what this means. And again, this church at Laodicea parallels so incredibly the age that we are currently going through and enduring. Uh, this is the final church age, the apostate church. Really, many scholars would argue and, and contend for the fact that it starts from around about 1900 AD and it will endure up until the time of the tribulation. And the dragnet also uh, is the um, uh, parable uh, that would seem to mirror this as well. And we have uh, Revelation 3, verse 16 to 17. <laughs> the incredible language that Jesus is using here is, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now again, a deeper study of these things just it makes it amazing to look at even the wording that's used here and the references and why it's used. But again, so applicable to the age that we live in, the church that we live in, that thinks it's got everything, thinks everything's sorted. You know, and we have all these pretenders that are standing up there in their, you know, lovely suits and Rolex watches and they have their jet parked outside and they're asking you to give money. You know, and so many other things that are going on, supposedly in the name of the gospel, in the name of Jesus. But so much of this is apostasy that will lead into a one world church. Well, to give you an overview then of all that we've just looked at, Ephesus just covered that first period of time, the church of Smyrna follows it, and then Pergamos. All of those, as it were, had their ending. But then Thyatira, we have this promise that they will continue up until the time of the Great Tribulation. Sardis also the same. The church then of Philadelphia are told that they will escape those things. 
that there's a promise, there's a way out promised for them. And that again would be the rapture of the church. And then finally, the church of Laodicea. So those three churches, in a sense, in, in essence, what we've got there is the Catholic church system with Thyatira. We've got the Reformation churches with the, uh, the Sardis. And then we've also got all this modern wave of churches and all these this new ideas that are being uh, uh, propagated, uh, supposedly again in the name of, uh, of the gospel. All of those will end up being joined together and we see it right now, don't we? These things are happening. They will all be joined together and they will form part of a one world church. And next week we'll explore that in a bit more detail as we get to Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon the Great is what it's referenced to as there and we'll see why. Jesus said, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Why is it Jesus says this? Well, first of all, notice that he's saying that he's doing, doing the will of my Father. What is God's will? Well, we look at First Thessalonians 4, and God's will is our sanctification. So, to do the will of the Father is that we are sanctified. And notice what's also put in this verse, that you should obtain from, uh, abstain from fornication. It's almost like two separate subjects, isn't it? Well, no, because as far as God is concerned, to do God's will, to be separate... Remain, implies and means being spiritually separate. See, fornication, of course, there's a natural physical component to it. But God really is looking at the spiritual element of this. John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. So the way that we are sanctified and set apart is through God's word. <clears throat> In Ephesians 5, again, speaking of the church and so on, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church that he, and he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. You start to see how important the word is if we are to be sanctified. Again, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. If you are to do God's will, you have to be immersed in his word. You cannot just dismiss God's word and then just go with whatever ideas, every wind of doctrine that's blowing around. If you want to be pleasing to God, then you need to be in his word, reading his word, learning and studying and growing therein. The danger is that many will say to me in that day, says Jesus, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? In your name cast out devils, in your name done many wonderful works. You see, there are many people within the church system that do all sorts of wonderful stuff. But that doesn't mean they are Christ's. And I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. It's a big subject. We can take it up some other time. I encourage you to do some reading and look into this as well. Okay, so chapter 4 and 5, we get to the throne room of heaven. After this I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now many, and myself included, think that this is a, a very much a parallel to the rapture of the church, because we've come to the end of the church ages. And the next thing we see is the church appearing in heaven. Up to this point, the church has been mentioned 19 times. The church won't get mentioned again through the next uh, whole portion of the tribulation on earth. They're not even referenced, not mentioned, not alluded to in any way, shape or form as being on earth. The church now, at this point, is brought up that kind of call to come up here. <clears throat> John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow around the throne in sight like unto an emerald. 
Uh, again, just the, it's Jesus, uh, Jesus is the focus of what John sees. But that's kind of the, almost the dust settles after John's there and just the, the enormity of this vision. He says, Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now this is really important because the question is, who are the elders? Well, unquestionably, this is the church. Why 24? Well, because if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that David arranged the priesthood into 24 courses. 24 becomes representative of the whole. And just the same here, because we are also a kingdom of priests, and we've been arranged into 24 courses, and so we have 24 representatives before the throne. The other clues, of course, white raiment is only ever promised to the church. Crowns of gold are only ever promised to the church. And there's so many other evidences and proofs from scripture that we can show this. And then we just read on. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. This is incredible because not only are we then laying our crowns before the throne, we sing the great hymn, don't we? Crown him with many crowns. It just pains me sometimes as I think how many people sing that not knowing what they are singing about. But this is talking about that moment before the throne as we lay our crowns before the throne. And we've talked a lot about that as we've gone through the New Testament. But then, notice what we're told. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power for you. Let a big bang happen and then after millions of years we have life and then that kind of gradually evolved. No, no, no. We don't have that, do we? What is it we praise God for when we get to heaven? That he is creator. I think that's hugely significant. That we're praising God and thanking God that he is the creator of all things. We live in a world that is riddled with this nonsense of evolution. But we will praise God that he is creator. So, why is Jesus coming back anyway? Just want to just address this as we move into the, the next section. Because, first of all, in the beginning God made everything good. We understand that, we're told that in the book of Genesis, it's repeated a number of times. God then gives man dominion over the earth. But then Satan, who was originally a perfect angel, and we're told in Ezekiel that he was in Eden, in an unfallen state. Well, this perfect angel enters the scene. And Satan's sin, we're told in 1 Timothy 3.6, was pride. Why so? Well, because no doubt the angels had looked on, and we're told in the book of Job, that the angels were singing as God was creating everything. And probably Satan, who was the anointed cherub, the chief angel at that time, is looking and thinking, well, just like Haman, do you remember we're looking in the book of Esther? Well, whom else could the, the king want to honour more than me? Satan thinking that all this was being created for him. And he's probably... Talking to the other angels saying, this is lovely. Look, who's going to get this? Yeah. And suddenly God creates man. Because you see, we're told in Isaiah 14 that Satan wanted to be like God. Why did he want to be like God? Because man had been made in the image and likeness of God. And Satan becomes envious. No angel is created in the image and likeness of God, but man was. And so Satan wants to be like God. And so as a result of this... Man is deceived, Satan sets up this uh, whole charade. Man is deceived and forfeits the title to the earth. So Satan gets what he wanted. He wanted to have this wonderful world, this earth that God was creating and all the wonders that are in it. And so Satan becomes, as we're told in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that Satan is the God of this world. 
in the temptation in the wilderness in Luke 4, when Jesus is challenged by Satan and tempted and so on, that Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't say, well, you can't do that, they're not yours. Jesus knows full well that for now they are Satan's. That's the way it is for now. And so Satan gains the title to the earth. In chapter 5, by the way, we just carry on. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side. This book is written on both sides of the documents, sealed with seven seals. Now, from a historical point of view, if you look back, you'll find that documents like this were typically a title deed, written on both sides and sealed in the way that they were. This seems to be the title deed for the planet Earth. And a strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book, to lose the seals thereof? Now it's incredible because as John gives his response, he says, and no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. Why is it John was looking for a man? Well, because the dominion of the earth had been given to man. And if you understand the rules that we read in the Torah, that God has established regarding ownership, you see, the title of earth had passed to Satan. The only way that could be purchased back again is if a kinsman of Adam could be found, a relative that was able then to buy it back. Just as we have in the whole story of the book of Ruth. Boaz was a family member. That's why he was able to purchase back the land that had been Naomi's husband. But if he hadn't been a family member, he would have had no right to do so. So they were looking for a man. And it's incredible because John, then we read, I wept much because no man was found worthy. See, John, I think, realized the import of what was going on here. That unless somebody could be found that was worthy to purchase back the earth, it would remain under the jurisdiction and dominion of Satan. But then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. In other words, there is one who is worthy. There is a relative of Adam, a man, that is able to buy back title to the earth. So, we continue. Satan has the title to the earth for now. Only a kinsman of Adam could redeem it. And again, that scripture from Leviticus, it will be there on the slides. You can have a look at that from Leviticus 25, 25. The book of Ruth is a great model of all of this. The cry is made that no one is found worthy, no man is found worthy, until, of course, Jesus then steps forward. And Jesus is worthy. And Jesus takes a scroll and effectively claims the title to the earth. But we don't see that played out until we get to chapter 10. Do you remember what I said earlier? Time is up. No more. That kind of one, two, three, right. Well, chapter 10 is when Jesus says, coming ready or not, effectively. <clears throat> and then Jesus will return to reign on David's throne. We're told... That they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. I just want to highlight this for you, because again, this place is the church in heaven. It's redeemed us, made us, and we shall. Some other versions don't translate it this way. They put they, them, and everything. And it implies that this is not the church. But for the whole context, this clearly is the church. Then we get to chapter 6, and the tribulation begins. Now, 
I'm not going to read these scriptures for you. Uh, I want you to take away, these will be in the notes. Have a look at these at your leisure. But Isaiah 13, uh, verses 6 through 13 and so on, make it very clear that the time that is coming on the earth is a time of tribulation and is wrath from God. Look at that first verse. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. This isn't the kind of tribulation that Christians experience. We all experience, Jesus said that those who live godly will suffer persecution. This is the tribulation that is coming as a direct result of God's wrath being poured out on an unbelieving and Christ-rejecting world. That portion just carries on. <clears throat> Zephaniah speaks again of the great day of the Lord being near. It is near, hastens greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly, the day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble. And it goes on. This time, clearly from Scripture, is a time of judgment uh, that's being poured out by God. Again, look at those Scriptures, please do. Uh, In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks about this time. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. And he says that when those things start to happen, that will be, and the phrase Jesus uses, is the beginning of sorrows. And then we carry on. And except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Now, probably at the time when Jesus said these words and people would have listened to him, there could have been those that would have scoffed and said, yeah, there's no way any Roman army or any battle would wipe out all of humanity. But now, we live in a world with nuclear weapons, with weapons that could, at a push of a button, mean that no flesh would be saved. Uh, but God says, for the elect's sake, and by the way, that elect, I believe, is reference to the Jews. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And if any man say to you, lo, here is Christ, there believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. And again, their intent will be to deceive. So let me give you just a brief overview of this period of time as we just draw to a close now. So we're going to have a seven-year period of time. Divided into two, three and a half year periods, this is expressly stated in the text itself. It's given to us as 1,260 days, which is three and a half years of a 360 day year. Now we've talked about that previously. When the Bible deals with prophetic years, it always seems to use 360 day years. For various interesting reasons that we could discuss some other time. So we have 1,260 days. We also have another way it's referred to as time single, times, plural, and half a time. Okay. Again, we can draw back into the book of Daniel. We see that reference. Again, it's talking about three and a half years. And then we also have 42 months, the same period of time again. So these three and a half years are referred to in a number of ways, making up the total of seven years, which is the final seven years of the prophecy given in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. Okay. It's a period of seven years that's yet to play out, and this will be it. Now the first part, again, using Jesus' own definitions, is referred to as the beginning of sorrows, and then the second part is the great tribulation. The beginning, prior to the beginning of sorrows, the church will be raptured, and at the end, the conclusion of it, will be the second coming, when Christ will return with his bride, as uh, the, one of the oldest prophecies in the Bible, in the, or recorded of Enoch, who occurs in the book of Genesis, records that Jesus comes with ten thousands of his saints, coming back with them. So let's just zoom in on that period of time and see what's going to happen. So this first period of time, we see these seals, these seven seals. The first seal is opened, and we see a rider with a white horse, um, imitating Christ. 
of course. Because Christ will come back on a white horse. This will be Antichrist. And he comes with a bow. Now, people sometimes get confused because he has no arrows. That's not the kind of bow I believe it's referencing here. Because back in Genesis, we're told that a bow is a sign of a covenant. And one of the things that we will know will be the thing that sets this period in motion will be the confirmation or the ratification of a treaty with Israel. A covenant will be signed. So he's going to come on a white horse, bringing peace, seemingly, and this establishing of a covenant. And we then get to the second seal that is opened. And then a rider on a red horse will come, and world war will break out. I mean, you can, you, the political landscape is such that we're not that far away from these things being able to happen. The third seal, then a black horse. And there's worldwide famine. Well, there's no secret that after wars, one of the biggest problems often that ensues is famine. We've seen that uh, previously in various things in the past, historical references. Um, the fourth seal is then opened. And we ride it on a pale horse. And a quarter of the population of the earth will die. This is incredible. We're talking over one and a half billion people, potentially. I mean, you know, you, this, all of Europe and, and more dying. I mean, we're so conditioned, aren't we? Because so many people have seen and the world gets you're so used to these disaster movies. And we, kind of all, we have this mindset that we can overcome, we, we can be victorious. Well, that will be the world's mindset. The fifth seal then is opened and the scene changes to heaven and John sees these martyred saints in heaven. Incidentally, he seems to be given wedding garments to wear, which is interesting. And as a result of this, they cry out, saying, how long have we to you avenge our blood? And they're told, wait. Because it will happen, but just not yet. Then we get the sixth seal. And then we get great earthquakes, the sun's going to be darkened, and again, earth is going to become an extremely unpleasant place to have it at that time. And then we're told one of the most bizarre and just upsetting verses probably in the whole of the Bible. Verse 15 of Revelation. Uh, it just says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, the bond men, the free men, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. This is everybody is fleeing at this point. But look at why. And said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? What really upsets me about this is that people realize that this judgment is coming from God. And what do they do? Harden their hearts. Just like Pharaoh did. They don't repent. They harden their hearts. It's just so baffling. In chapter 7, as I said earlier, 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses, clearly Jews, they have a new song to sing. If any Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, and uh, ask them first of all if they know one of the 144,000. If they do, ask them if they can sing a bit of the song. Because this is a song that only the 144,000 can sing. Nobody else can sing it. And they're told that they're from each of the tribes. So again, ask your Jehovah's Witness friend, which one of the tribes of Israel are they from? And uh, they'll probably leave at that point. Um, but these are clearly, God reserves these. I mean, one of the, the conjectures is that, I mean, the Jews, as you know, many of them will speak many languages, bilingual. More than just bilingual, more than just two languages, but many languages. And it would seem that God will use these individuals to preach the gospel during this period of time. Again, we have 12,000 from each tribe, as I said, with a new song. There's also a great multitude that are seen here that come out of the tribulation. Why? Well, this isn't the church, by the way. The church has already been taken at the time of the rapture. But many people will believe 
after the church is taken, after these things start to happen, a lot of people are going to be starting to reach for their Bibles. You know those Gideon Bibles that have been left in hotel rooms, that were given to children at school? And other copies that have been left around. People will be grasping those Bibles and starting to read. And many people will be saved during that period of time. Again, the Bible indicates that these that come out of tribulation are going to be wedding guests. And then chapter 8, with the seventh seal is opened, followed by silence in heaven for half an hour. And then that is followed by the first four trumpet judgments. So now we carry on. <clears throat> we get another earthquake and lightning, and the trumpets are preparing to sound. Again, the things that are going on earth, it's just difficult to imagine the intensity and the scale. But the first trumpet, and we find that hail and fire and blood rain down, but only on a third of the trees and the green grass. Now I say only, that's still amazing. But only a third. See, God's judgment at this point is limited. And there's a very good reason for it, which we'll explore and explain next week. The second trumpet sounds, and then we find that a massive meteor will hit the oceans. A third of all marine life is going to die, a third of all ships will be destroyed. And we saw the devastation of the tsunami um, back some years ago now. And a big meteor hitting the oceans. I mean, yeah. The third trumpet sounds. Another star hits the rivers and contaminates a third of the rivers. And we're told that many men die. Now this is many on top of all those that have already died in the wars and everything else leading to this point. And by the way, just to remind you at this point, this is still the beginning of sorrows. And so the fourth judgment, then a third uh, of the sun and moon turn to darkness. So there's going to be, again, serious, serious problems. It's going to affect so much of the, the ecological system on earth and plant life and all sorts of things are going to be affected as a result of this. And tidal situations, all sorts of things going on. And then we get to the woes, three woes. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. In other words, you think it's been bad so far. And then we get chapter 9, the next couple of trumpet judgments. And we find that we have these demonic locusts are released from the bottomless pit. And they're given power to torture men for five months, but men are not granted the permission to die. So they'll be tortured, but they won't be able to die. It's a horrible situation. Now, as an interesting aside, it seems to be, if you look and read through the text... um, these demonic um, locusts and the beings that are going out doing this um, may well be those angelic beings that had been incarcerated, put in prison at the time of the, the flood and the fall, of the, the situation with Noah and so on. Uh, we're told that they're reserved for the judgment of the great day. So it may well be that they are the ones and partly responsible for what's going on here. It's just a picture there of kind of a, a locust uh, um, storm, if you like. Uh, and there's been a number of these recorded through history. Um, but it will be, and these, the ones that the Bible talks about are not just normal locusts, but demonic beings. And then finally we get to the sixth trumpet. And then the 200 million demonic army is released to kill a third of men. I just, you do not want to be on earth at this point. Interestingly, in the book of Joel, we've got a, what seems to be a fulfillment of the last three feasts of Israel. We did mention this going through the book of Joel. The Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and then finally the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'll let you do your studying, but they all tie in with these things that we're looking at here. 
The sixth trumpet, again, just, just in Joel, it talks about a nation coming up on the land. Uh, and again, seemingly talking about these, these creatures, these beings. Uh, again, I'll let you go through those scriptures in the book of Joel. Well, certainly very interesting. And then, almost to conclude, time is up. The warning signs have been given. Everybody now has had opportunity to realize, to repent. And the great tribulation is about to begin. God is now going to dispossess the usurpers from the land. So everything so far, all of that horrible stuff we've just seen, those cataclysmic events, that is just the beginning of sorrows. It's getting the world ready to say, okay, moment of decision. You know, and effectively God will allow this, this last opportunity for people to repent. And then begins the great tribulation. And we read in uh, Revelation 10, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that are therein, and the earth, and the things that are therein, and the sea, and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now, just to point out, some people misunderstand this, and they say, therefore, in eternity there, will no be, there won't be any time or measurement of time. Now, of course, eternity is not bound by time, but we have in the New Jerusalem, and we'll see as we look at there, we have seasons. Okay, because every tree will produce its leaves, its fruit in its season. So there has to be some measure of time to some degree. Um, there's also day and night forever for those that are in hell. So don't get confused with this first, thinking it means that time as we know it will cease. What this is simply saying is time is up. That's what it's saying, that there should be time no longer. No more time. You're out of time. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he's declared to his servants, the prophets. What a great statement. Because it's now that God is going to wrap everything up and the mystery that God has declared, the mystery of the church, of Christ and the church, of eternity, all of these things are going to be completed. And the seventh angel sounded and there was great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Now this is only Revelation chapter 10. Um, But at this point, we've still got a lot to go. But this is that moment where this declaration is sounded. Satan's rule and dominion on earth has now officially come to an end at this point. And of course, the rest of what plays out is God then bringing judgment and getting ready to finally dis, uh, to, uh, dispossess the usurpers. And so, this section, which we'll conclude now, finishes in chapter 11 with a jump back to the start of this whole period of seven years. So that we've only got to the three and a half year point, but we jump back in chapter 11 and look at the two witnesses. And the two witnesses are two individuals that we're told are going to stand in Jerusalem, they're going to testify... They're going to be put to death. The people of the earth are going to have a great party. But then God is going to cause them to come back to life. And then they'll be raptured. They'll be caught up to the throne. Now there's question marks as to who and what and everything else. I'll tell you straight up. I believe these two individuals will be Moses and Elijah. Because the great two witnesses that God has given are the law and the prophets. The law is there to convert the soul. To convince us that we're guilty before God. And the prophets have been given to us to convince us intellectually. No man is with, without any excuse. Nobody can say, oh, I don't believe in that nonsense. Because the prophecies of scripture show to anybody that's intellectual and willing to look at them that the Bible is true, it's God's word, and these things will happen. And the law is there to convict you in your heart that regardless of any intellectual defense you may put forward, you are guilty before a holy God. They are the two witnesses that God has established. And so... I believe that what we'll see 
<clears throat> again, is that Moses being representative of the law, Elijah being representative of the prophets, are going to finally come back. And interestingly enough, that we have prophecies in the text uh, back in Malachi, and Jesus refers to as well, that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. There's a prophecy in Deuteronomy speaking of the fact that Moses also would return. And that's what the Jews believed. And there's also an allusion to that in John's Gospel. So... Uh, yeah, it's interesting as well, of course, that Elijah never died. He was caught up to heaven. And there was this big dispute, if you remember, in the book of um, Jude, with uh, the devil and the archangel Michael over exactly where God buried Moses' body. Why was he interested in Moses' body? Uh, of course, those two appear on the Mount of Transfiguration and so on. And uh, we see them, two men, seemingly the same, two people, are clothed, uh, sorry, at the tomb and also at the ascension. Um, and it would seem to be these two individuals would come back at that time. So... Just to give you a final overview then. So we've got those seven seals, which will be followed by these six trumpets that will take us up to that halfway point, and then that seventh trumpet sounds leading us into the great tribulation. The two witnesses will prophesy for that first period of time, and then they themselves will be caught up to the throne. They'll be leaving. The 144,000 Jews also seemingly sealed in the early part of the tribulation, and then they also are caught up uh, to heaven as well. There's going to be those that come out of the tribulation, and we'll look at the final point um, next week when that kind of uh, the opportunity to escape, as it were, comes um, uh, as we look at the tribulation martyrs next week as well. And then finally, those seven vile judgments. So, heavy going, isn't it? But you know, the Bible says that there is salvation in no other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, we're told that God winked or overlooked times of ignorance in the past. But now, he calls everybody everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. And he's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Romans tells us again that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we can have assurance that we are saved and we have no need to go through any of this, nor do our loved ones, our families, our friends, anybody. Finally, Peter reminds us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Please, as you leave here this morning... Don't go under any illusion that this is going to be harsh and hard. And Why would God do that? We're dealing with a world that is so, so far removed from God's standard. It's so riddled and full of iniquity. You only need to look at a newspaper. And the events of this week, some of those things that we've been hearing on the news and have been reported in the papers, are just so horrible. Well, God is going to deal with all of those things. But he's giving everyone a chance to repent. And that's why... We need to be preaching the gospel. Whether we go out on the streets in Portsmouth, whether we talk to our families, whether we just share the gospel with our friends, whatever we do, this stuff is going to happen. Again, prophecy is not a prediction. It's the future revealed in advance. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this book. We thank you that it unveils the King of Kings. And it doesn't unveil a king who is all meek and mild and gentle as so often people picture you, Jesus. But it reveals you as you truly are. 
A God who is just. A God who doesn't want people to perish. Who has provided the best and the only way of escaping these things. And so Jesus, help us as your ambassadors, as your servants, to be bold and to tell others of these things. To be stirred, Lord, to the very core of our being as we realize the reality of what is coming upon this earth. And Father, help us by your grace to reach out to witness. And Father, we pray for a harvest of souls to come in. Lord, before the rapture, we pray, before you come and take us back. Lord, we just thank you for these things. Lord, help us to just unravel them in our heads and in our hearts. And Lord, just continue to teach us and speak to us through your spirit, working in us, we ask, over the days and weeks ahead. We just give you the glory now, in Jesus' name. Amen.